Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world and straight ahead on the program, a peek at what the Fed is really thinking about interest rates. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking at the consequences of war in Ukraine. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. What's at stake as President Biden visits Poland? I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We read the tea leaves on where the incoming BOJ governor, Kazuo Ueda, is going with the whip in his hand. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the Fed and minutes from the Fed's latest policy meeting coming out on Wednesday. Joining me to talk about it, Bloomberg's global economic and policy editor, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, these minutes from the FOMC from their last meeting, it wrapped up on February 1st. The central bankers announced a pretty modest 25 basis point hike in benchmark rates. The key, of course, is what policymakers see looking ahead. So, what are we hoping to see this time? Well, ordinarily, you'd say you don't get that much from the minutes because it's three weeks old and we've had a lot of data since then. And we have had a lot of data that may have changed their views. And this week, we got some of those views starting to change in public uh, with uh, Cleveland Fed's Loretta Mester, for example, saying that she thought that they should have done 50 basis points at that February 1st meeting. that would have been something we were looking for in the minutes. Well, let's hear uh, a sound from Loretta Mester right now on why she says the case was made for a much bigger basis point hike. So at this juncture, the incoming data have not changed my view that we will need to bring the Fed funds rate above 5% and hold it there for some time to be sufficiently restrictive to ensure that inflation is on a sustainable path back to 2%. Indeed, at our meeting two weeks ago, setting aside what financial market participants expected us to do, I saw a compelling economic case for a 50 basis point increase, which would have brought the top of the target range to 5%. All right, Loretta Mester there. And uh, now let's go back. Some of the things that you just talked about, these uh, data points that really may have been exactly what she was referring to about a better-than-forecast jobs report for January, better-than-forecast Q4 GDP, better-than-forecast retail sales for the same month, and and how that may have influenced 
the Fed in the last three weeks. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how it might have influenced the Fed, because we've seen inflation uh, come down a lot in November and December, and then rebound in January in both the CPI and the PPI. And maybe it's uh, telling us what the Fed has been trying to tell us, that the inflation uh, genie is still not back in the bottle. It's going to take a while to bring that down, and they need to do more for longer, raise rates higher for longer, which is something they've been saying for a long time. Uh, The real dichotomy seems to be on the growth side, where uh, many of these Fed officials, including Mester, uh, including Tom Barkin earlier, um, saying that uh, we think there's going to be a recession or darn close to it. Uh, Loretta Mester said that uh, business contacts in her district are preparing for one. And yet, as you mentioned, the retail sales numbers and other signs of growth have come in fairly strong. So when does that happen? Right. And and you spoke to Richmond Fed President Barkin just this past week and got some great insight from him. So let's listen to what he told you about Fed rate hikes. Well, I try not to get uh, too wound up in any particular data read, particularly a January data read, large seasonality factors, all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but I do think uh, what we're now in a position to do is to react to multiple months of data as they come in. Uh, we may or may not uh, choose to take rates up further if inflation continues to persist, but we'll have to see what happens. All right. That's Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin there. Now, Michael, what other insights could you glean from your conversation with him? Well, he's basically saying that the Fed is going to be data dependent, which, of course, we all know, which means that their horizon is shorter. They're looking between meetings, what's changed, rather than where we think we'll be at the end of the year. They're all predicting that we're going to see inflation come down further. There are differences in opinion, of opinion in terms of uh, how fast that's going to be. The question is, in the meantime, what are they going to do? And they're looking... Uh, at each meeting as a decision point based on the data that they have brought in, whereas many in the markets had been looking out farther into 2023 and saying, we're going to see a slowdown, or we're going to see a recession, or we're going to see inflation come down. And so basically, markets had been rallying on the thought that the Fed wouldn't have to do much more and we'd have lower interest rates. Now, the markets seem to be catching up with the Fed and the idea that this is going to take longer than expected, and they're going to raise rates faster and farther than expected. Now, the benchmark lending rate is not the only arrow in the Fed's quiver. There's also other quantitative easing measures they can take. They're a tremendous balance sheet. What else can we maybe expect to see from the Fed Maybe not at the March meeting, but later this year. Well, that would depend on what happens in Washington. The Fed's going to keep the balance sheet uh, reduction going at the uh, rate it has been, $60 billion a month. And there's no reason for them to change it at this point. There have been concerns in the markets that it might be disruptive to the markets, that it might lead to some liquidity issues in various markets. And we're not really seeing that yet. So they can keep going. Um, the issue becomes if we get a debt ceiling problem, <laughs> if we uh, violate the debt ceiling, then uh, do the market seize up and does the Fed have to start expanding its balance sheet again to try to get us out of the hole? That's going to be something that's going to worry the markets as we get closer to that X date, which uh, the Congressional Budget Office said uh, this week was maybe between July and September. And so you'll probably see some repricing as we get closer to that date, depending on the news out of out of Capitol Hill. Now, another thing the markets and the Fed are, are really focused on, and that is housing. 
and its impact on the economy. So we're getting a report on existing home sales next week. We just had some pretty encouraging data from home builders. They see things maybe turning around. We've seen uh, interest rates fluctuate a little bit, maybe giving a little boost. How important is housing right now? And could we be poised for a turnaround in the spring? Well, housing is a an important part of the overall U.S. economy, smaller than it used to be, but it is also the most interest sensitive. So as the Fed raises rates, we've seen a real fall off in housing activity. Now, mortgage rates are kind of holding in. The question is, do they start to come down a little bit? They've fluctuated some. And does pent-up demand get people to buy anyway? <laughs> that seems to be happening a little bit. We're not at a at an inflection point yet, but we do seem to be getting close to the bottom in housing, and we're starting to see uh, more activity. Uh, home uh, housing starts were weaker than expected in the month of January, but uh, they may rebound as we get into the spring because uh, it, it, the builders have a lot of backlogs that they're still trying to work off. And one thing we don't know is is there a problem building because they can't find enough workers? We know there's a shortage of construction workers out there, and that just feeds into the whole stronger economy thing. So a lot is tied up in the housing market, um, not to mention its contributions to inflation. Oh, boy. And three jobs, uh, essentially, for every home that goes up. But if you can't find qualified workers, those homes are not going to go up. Yeah, that's been the, a real problem with new home construction and sales. All right, so let's circle back to the next meeting of the Fed. It's in March, just a few weeks away, and there's a lot of growing talk right now about not a 25 basis point hike, but a 50 basis point hike. And we heard from Mester just this past week. Are there any other hawkish comments you've heard from Feds that that would indicate that we're looking at a much bigger hike here and that would really disrupt things? Well, so far, it's only been a a little bit of speculation uh, in the sense that Mester said she would have raised rates 50 basis points at the last meeting. She did not say what she would do at the next meeting. And others have sort of made the case that, yes, we do need to do more. But you go back to their last uh, dot plot that came out in December. And at that point, they said we were going to go over 5% to 5.1%. And there was almost a majority for going above 5.1% to 5.5%. And so it is very possible that uh, the data that are coming in stronger than expected will push them in that direction. And if you were going to go higher, we're at 4.75 now. If you wanted to go to 5.5, then you might as well do a 50 basis point move. Um, So it becomes a, a more realistic possibility. Now we have another CPI report another PPI report, another jobs report, uh, all those before the next Fed meeting. So a lot could change in the way that all these numbers change from December to January. A lot could change between January and February. So we'll have to see, which gets us back to the old Fed thing about we're data dependent and we're going meeting by meeting. All right. Well, about five weeks away. And Michael McKee, Bloomberg's global economic and policy editor, thank you once again for all your insight. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, it's almost one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The situation there remains tense. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg.
The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, a lot of political changes in Washington, all of which could make or break for Democrats or Republicans. But first, next week marks one year since the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. For more on what's happening now, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak anchor, Caroline Hepker. Tom, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is an energy war against the whole of Europe. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg's oil trading team leader in Europe, Alaric Nightingale, and Rachel Morrison, who is our gas, power and renewables reporter. Welcome to both of you um, to talk about, you know, an immensely difficult subject. Next week, we'll see the one year commemoration of the start of this invasion of Ukraine. It has had such huge implications for the whole of Europe, a hot war. It's really changed everything. Rachel, can I start with you, though, and just talk about whether Europe has stopped using Russian energy now for good? Is that one of the big consequences of this conflict? Well, gas in particular was a really big weak point for Europe when it came to dependency on Russia. And that was one of the first things that the European Union thought to do was to try to reduce that dependence. And in a lot of countries, it seems to be that piped um, gas from Russia has been almost entirely replaced. What it's been replaced with is liquefied natural gas or LNG, and a lot of that does actually come from Russia. So we're not completely independent from from Moscow in getting those supplies, but how we receive them has completely changed. Alaric, how do you think about this? Energy security, you know, has come to the fore um, like it has rarely done before, not, not for many decades in Europe. Well, in both oil and gas, there's a huge mutual dependency or there was a huge mutual dependency between Russia and and, uh, and Europe. And in the oil market, we've seen a, a ban on almost all imports from Russia. Uh, how that, that's clearly going to last in the short term and, and may continue for a period after, because how do you walk back from that? You know, there's a lot that has to happen both in the conflict itself and then in the repairing of relationships before Europe can ever uh, resume Russian imports. But it's Mm -hmm. a huge source of supply and something that hasn't been painless for Europe or for Russia. 
Rachel, how did you manage to avoid a sort of energy breakdown? That was the doomsday scenario, wasn't it? That that when this sort of shock attack happened, the idea that there might be rolling blackouts on continental Europe. Yes, that's right. When the Nord Stream pipeline was attacked, that did cut off um, a vital supply line to Europe and ways in which We've managed that. Some have been um, fortunate, like a really mild winter, helped us to use less gas. But also the message coming from the European Union and from governments to use less. The targets for um, consumption cuts were voluntary, but we did see countries like France, like Germany, taking this really seriously. So people across Europe using less. We've switched on coal-fired power stations as well. That has not had, you know, that's not been great for the environment and for emissions, but that has helped reduce the need for gas. And yes, this winter has been mild and continues to be so. So we've still got much more gas in storage than we usually have at this time of year, which will help us going into next winter. So it's been a kind of combination of action by people kind of pulling together to try to save energy and also good fortune. Alec, what has it meant for gasoline and diesel prices for fuel across Europe? Well, I think it's been a bullish force. Uh, there's been a, a long period of uncertainty about what would happen with the supply of the, the raw crude that goes into oil refineries that makes the fuels. Um, and Russia itself is the biggest or was the biggest single supplier of uh, diesel to the European Union uh, until a, an imports ban began on February the 5th. So uh, we're still in the early phases of understanding how the various bands will play out. Um, but it, it's been a source of supply concern. And if we start to see uh, a real pickup in, in the Chinese economy, and that's always been the big driver of demand growth in the oil market. But if, if that really does come into play uh, and we see any kind of loss of Russian supply, I think there's a concern that prices could, could push higher. Rachel, has Europe then, um, you know, to continue the, the idea around energy independence, has Europe managed to replace Russian energy? Is it kind of rebranded Russian energy or what is it being replaced by? Um, because, again, the kind of the move towards renewables um, ha has been given a, bi a big shove by, by this fact. Yes, you, you could describe it in that way. We've really replaced Russian piped gas with LNG. A lot of that's coming from the US, from Qatar. And fundamentally, we are short of gas in Europe and globally until 2026, when more export capacity comes online in the US. So if there are factors that change the supply balance and make that LNG harder to get hold of or more expensive, then that will change things. So we're sort of in this quite um, strange situation where prices have fallen a lot. There's lots of supply around China. The economy hasn't bounced back as quickly as people thought from COVID. And so the picture's looking pretty good. But what we hear in the market is that can change very quickly. You know, we might see demand pick up from somewhere. We might see problems like the Freeport, um, which had a huge fire in the U.S. and stopped um, exports from there. You know, anything can happen. We might have cold weather next year. So although we're looking quite good at the moment, 
for this year and restocking um, gas reserves, there's still quite a lot of risk out there in the market. And it isn't easy to replace this huge amount of gas that we were getting from Russia. And we've managed it so far, but it's not, you know, it's not sort of plain sailing from here by any stretch. Yeah, that's interesting. The energy transition, Rachel, you mentioned, um, you know, what are we expecting to see? There's a real kind of division about how quickly uh, Europe is moving in terms of the energy transition. Yes, it's one of the sort of most straightforward solutions to the volatility in gas is to just use less of it. But that's difficult in the short term. Renewables projects do take time to build. One of the biggest issues that we hear from developers is about red tape um, surrounding kind of planning and actually getting projects built. So that slows everything down. And those can't really be sped up any more than they are at the moment. The European Union is looking at ways to try to get those projects online quicker. But while that takes time, then fossil fuels are the sort of easiest replacement. And last year, emissions, particularly in Germany, um, they didn't meet any of the reduction targets that they were supposed to because they were using more coal to try to use less gas. If that continues, what that means for sort of interim climate targets in 2030 and whether we see a kind of broader backsliding on emissions reductions at a time when really we should be pushing forward and, you know, getting to 2050 and net zero as quickly as possible. Okay, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's oil trading team leader here in Europe, Alec Nightingale and Rachel Morrison, our gas, power and renewables reporter as we think around the consequences of Putin's war in Ukraine. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, more on NATO efforts to repel Russia and President Biden's trip to Poland and elsewhere. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. President Biden heading out on a trip to Poland as we approach the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's an important trip, and for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and sound on host Joe Matthew. Joe? Thank you, Tom. And joining us now to talk about this trip, Bloomberg's national security editor, Nick Wadhams. He runs our national security team, and it's great to see you, Nick. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says this is a critically important opportunity to speak to both the international community and Americans back at home. Here's how she put it in the briefing room. Look, this is going to be the one year he's going there ahead of the one-year anniversary uh, and sending a strong message of solidarity. And uh, and the president understanding to reaffirm right our support for the Ukrainian people as they're fighting back against a brutal war uh, that Russia started almost a year ago. Almost a year, Nick. There are a lot of themes running through this. Support for Ukrainians, solidarity with NATO, message to the Russians, that the U.S. isn't giving up here. And I suppose a photo op for American voters to maintain some domestic support, although we know that there's already a little bit of pushback by some House Republicans when it comes to Ukrainian funding. What's the real audience for this trip? Well, you know, I think there are multiple audiences. One is back home. Obviously, Republicans uh, have not, uh, the most Republicans who actually have power are not calling for an actual reduction in funding, uh, but they do want more scrutiny. Uh, So he's got to keep folks together uh, back home to keep the the money and the weapons flowing to Ukraine. Uh, It's also directed at Europe because there is a, a concern that now that we're a year on, you know, Ukraine is firing an awful lot of artillery shells. They're losing uh, weaponry. They're using up all those uh, uh, long-range missiles and other things. So there, there really needs to be a continuous flow of, of financial support uh, and also military support. And that's going to have to come from the U.S., but it's also going to have to come from other countries. So, you know, the U.S. has been the primary backer of Ukraine's military as well as its economic lifeline. Mm-hmm. So President Biden's going over there to sort of give a shot in the arm to all these efforts and say, OK, listen, it has been a year. It's gone so fast, but we yeah. cannot let up. John Kirby spoke about this as well. He speaks for the National Security Apparatus at the White House. He wants to talk about uh, the importance of the international community's resolve and unity in supporting Ukraine for now going on a year. Wouldn't it be great if the president didn't have to make a trip around a one-year anniversary of a war that never should have started? Sadly, that's where we are, and he wants to make sure that he's sending that strong message, not only of the United States resolve, but the international community resolve. Well, it is where we are, Nick. Do we have a sense of what this trip is going to be like? Obviously, you know, this is a massive photo opportunity. Is he going to speak on the border? Will he be seen uh, mingling with troops, with people who live there? Or do we not have a sense of that? Well, they have not released a lot of that information yet, but you can expect um, that there will be, obviously, meetings with Polish leaders. Mm -hmm. Uh, There will be meetings with uh, Americans. I'm sure there will be an effort to get uh, close to the border, though obviously there are security risks around that. So 
uh, I'm sure that the team is is figuring that that out right now. I mean, it is so interesting that clip you played for me because it's like, hmm. well, uh, the message of unity, and and they keep repeating this is about uh, showing unity, and it's it's both showing unity, but it's also reinforcing unity. So, you know, trying to make sure that he is keeping those allies on board. Poland mm-hmm. is a great example. They want to push harder. They want more. They are very worried. You know, Ukraine yes. is on their border. Uh, and then you have other countries like France, for example, which is a little bit more hesitant about what to supply, though they have supplied a fair amount of weaponry, and, and how fast to do it. So it's, it's, they're, they're talking about a message of unity that's directed at Vladimir Putin, but it's also directed back at the alliance itself. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because the, the Munich Security Conference that's underway mm-hmm. ahead of this anniversary has, has brought about some tough memories uh, for some, particularly in Eastern Europe. It was 1938 at that very same event, Think Neville Chamberlain, 85 years ago. The Czechs know this as the Munich betrayal. (laughs) They know that, look, there's a window of opportunity here, and war fatigue is a real thing in the West. How concerned are they? Well, I mean, this this is very much a message directed at Vladimir Putin as well. So his forces uh, have launched a counteroffensive, again, a sort of counter to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, firing off massive missile barrages. They have managed to take some more territory, but they have stalled out in other areas, and there are real divisions. You've seen a back and forth between the Wagner Group, this, mm. this private military group that's fighting on the Russian side, and the Russian general staff reports that Russia has now lost half of its tanks and basically doesn't have uh, well-trained troops to send in anymore. Uh, So they're really trying to show Russia, listen, if you want to keep prosecuting this war, it is going to be extremely uh, costly for you. Munich, you know, Munich has really changed over the years because the Munich Security Conference has become uh, this venue for Western countries to gather in one space. I mean, I've been in that in that place. It's crazy. You'll be walking through this crowded hall, and oh, there's the German Chancellor. There's right. the German. Oh, there's Justin Trudeau. You're sort of rubbing suddenly in a room, rubbing shoulders with all these uh, major power players. Yeah, Th- this is really the place. I mean, in, in a way, it's perfect timing for Joe Biden because this is really the place where. Western officials and people from around the world gather and make these pledges of unity, you know, stressing the importance of the inter- of the global order, the, you know, the international laws and norms. And so it's a perfect place to sort of uh, direct that message back at Putin. Talk to us, Nick, about what's happening on the battlefield right now. General Mark Milley spoke a couple of days ago along with the defense secretary to reporters describing this again as a war of attrition, but one that is really gutting, to your point earlier, the Russian military. Here's what he said. Their progress is slow. It's a war of attrition. They're taking heavy casualties. Uh, Their leadership and morale is not great, um, and they're struggling mightily. However, uh, they do have numbers, uh, and and as you know, uh, President Putin did a call-up of uh, several hundred thousand, uh, and those uh, folks have uh, been arriving on the battlefield. So they do have uh, numbers. At what point, though, do those numbers uh, show the, the diminishing returns of, of opening prisons, for instance, right. or grabbing anyone you can and sending them into the battlefield? At, at a certain point, you can't win a war that way. Well, I mean, uh, you're right. Uh, and we do have reports that, that Russia is trying to be a little bit more uh, parsimonious in the way that it fires artillery shells and things like that. There mm-hmm. are suggestions that it is running out. But, you know, the numbers are so big. Uh, and compared to Ukraine, 
uh, w- whose army is is quite a bit smaller. So there's there is a real numbers game that is that it is hard to square against. I mean, Russia is is not going to be r- running out of boots on the ground. They may not be super high quality soldiers, but they're they are not running out of that particularly soon. The other problem you have here is that this is obviously a war, but Ukraine so far has been restricted from hitting. Russian targets inside Crimea, which Russia took in 2014, or inside of Russia itself. That's a very deliberate policy by the West because they don't want to start a wider war with NATO. But you have this issue where a lot of Russian assets are essentially untouched. Uh, One of the big ones is its Air Force. And uh, General Milley has talked about this before. Uh, Russia has used its air force to some degree, but not to the fullest extent possible. So Ukraine is very much focused on defense and protecting from incoming missiles and fighter jets and things like that. But they are not targeting Russian forces on the ground inside Russia. And that's something that Russia is using to its advantage. For sure. And of course, the the call for fighter jets continues uh, as we go into the second year. We've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of different levels of hardware balked at and then eventually delivered. Right. Uh, is, is that actually what they need? The, the, the Pentagon would tell you that it's actually not, that they need air defenses. Right. Ukraine says, please send the jets. Right. I mean, this sort of fits a pattern with the Ukrainians where they they go from one piece of kit to the next. Yeah. And, you know, a couple months ago it was all about tanks and now it's, it's a huge focus on the fighter jets. I mean, it's uh, the bigger issue, though, that Ukraine argues is, again, that they are too, too, they are focused on defense and they want to be able to, in some ways, go on offense. And that's that's a situation that Russia is exploiting and using to its advantage. Great conversation and great insights from Nick Wadhams, who runs our national security team for Bloomberg News here in Washington. Nick, many thanks to you. We'll be looking for your reporting on the one year mark next week. Thanks, Joe. Tom, back to you. Bloomberg's Joe Matthew reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Joe on Sound On weekdays, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Japan's central bank faces a tangled policy web. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
Some changes ahead, some problems for Japan's central bank. And for more on what we're watching, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. Tom, challenges abound for the incoming governor of the Bank of Japan, Kazuo Ueda. How do you stimulate growth without further stoking inflation? How do you reform the yield curve control program without driving JGB yields up and the yen sharply higher? Now, the combination of yield curve control and quantitative easing has turned the BOJ into the largest owner of stocks and government bonds in Japan. The BOJ's balance sheet has jumped to the equivalent of $547 billion. That's equal to 130% of GDP. Yet, instead of releasing the economy's animal spirits, it's driven investors abroad. So the question, how does the new governor get that money back without driving the yen substantially higher? Well, joining us to sort through all of this is Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Policy and Economy Editor. Kathleen, thanks very much for joining us. Let's start off with the the simplest question, or maybe it's not so simple. What's the biggest challenge that Kazuo Ueda faces? Well, the biggest challenge is starting to walk down the path of normalization. And you've just laid out all the difficulties. Uh, Inflation is rising in Japan. It's far above its target, but a lot of it is commodity price driven. And the BOJ currently doesn't think that's potentially sustainable. So they feel that the the current crew says, look, uh, we can't stop monetary easing. And there's going to be a new governor at the helm. Uh, but there's still going to be a lot of the same people on the board. So it's not as though you're going to have a wholesale change because you get a new governor. And uh, he is well-respected, well-known within and out, without, outside of the Bank of Japan and in Japan economic circles and globally. But uh, it's just even starting it is going to be tough because of the ramifications it could quickly have in the market. So from what I've read, he seems to be characterized as being methodical. He's a gradualist, as one of our colleagues put it, a pragmatist, and dubbed an owl in the tradition of Christine Lagarde, who said she was neither a hawk nor a dove, but aimed to be the wiser bird. So in terms of creating kind of a stable environment for the conversation to begin and not disrupt markets, not create a lot of volatility, right? Of course. And I think whoever would have gotten that job had it been Deputy Governor Amamiya who turned the job down. He didn't think he was, he thought he was too close to the process of creating this whole system. And he was, he was the architect of yield curve control itself, uh, that he didn't think he could he could appropriately review it. And that's what's going to happen first. And that's been signaled by Prime Minister Fumio Kishida for about the past two or three months. They're in uh, 10 years ago, 2013, uh, led by uh, former Prime Minister Abe, uh, there the government made a new accord with the BOJ to get to 2% inflation as quickly as they could. And then Kuroda committed to two years and never exactly got there. Uh, so that's the first thing. And I think this is going to be methodical. I think it's going to be step by step. And everybody has said, for the past three or four months I've asked this question, communication. You need somebody who's a good communicator because communicating what you're doing and why to the markets is going to be critical. Well, to your point, I mean, Ueda is a big champion of forward guidance. I mean, he was one of the kind of pioneers in that, from what I've read, about the way in which the BOJ offers forward guidance. Of course, he's never had to do it himself. Well, there you go. Since, well, I shouldn't say that. Not since 1998-2005. And let's remember, too, that he established, he was part of a very dovish, dovish crew, but they, they needed it. You know, they were still struggling a lot with inflation and ultimately growth. But... Uh, 
uh, he voted for, uh, he helped usher in quantitative easing, negative rates. So this is not some guy who's got, we can't really tell if he's a hawk or a dove. And I think the best central bankers, they're not inherently hawkish or dovish. They're inherently yeah. people who want to figure it out. All right, Kathleen, out of time now, but thanks very much for shedding some light on these big challenges ahead for the Bank of Japan and its new governor. Kathleen Hayes, Bloomberg's Global Policy and Economy Editor. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.